All right, let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Bow and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. When we come together as the body of Christ to worship you in various ways, and uh, including uh, worshiping you by studying your word. We thank you for uh, your revelation, uh, how you've revealed yourself in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. You've revealed who you are. You've revealed your great plan of redemption for mankind from the time of the fall uh, in Genesis 3 all the way to uh, the consummation that we see here in the book of Revelation. We thank you for all that, Lord. We thank you for your sovereignty over every inch of your creation and every second of time. We thank you for the great love that you've shown for us in sending your son Jesus to live a sinless life and to die in our place on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you raised him from the dead and that he sits at your right hand interceding on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, for all the promises that we see in your word. We thank you for the warnings that you give in your word. And we pray, Lord, as we study your word today, that it would energize us, empower us, and motivate us to share the gospel with our unbelieving friends and family members and neighbors and co-workers. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, part number 24. Um, we, this is a 39-part uh, series, as I mentioned, so we have a few more parts left in this quarter, and then we have one more quarter to go, and I think the sign-ups for the next quarter will be happening soon. Um, so here, here we are um, going through this, um, what... Is this, what the, the book describes itself as the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's what we're looking at. Uh, part 24, we're going to call the War of the Ages. Uh, it actually, we had a prelude to it last time, and this time the war really gets going. And we'll see a war in heaven, and we'll see a war on earth today. And this will be um, the last part of chapter 12, verses 7 to 17, that we'll be studying this time. We, we did the last part of chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12 last time. Uh, so today we'll look at the war in heaven. We'll see the battle, we'll see the victory, and we'll see the celebration of that victory. And then we'll see a war on earth, and we'll see Satan launch attack number one, attack number two, and attack number three um, against the woman who is uh, symbolizing Israel in this case. Uh, so a war in heaven and a war on earth is what we'll see uh, this time, with the dragon being at the center of these wars. But first, let's take a look back at what we did last time. So last time, we looked at the, the very end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, um, and we had the, the sounding of the seventh trumpet, but there's a delay. There's a delay between the sounding that we get in 11... Chapter 11, verse 15, and the actual events that unfold from the sounding, uh, there's a delay, and, and this delay really is all of chapters 12, 13, and 14 that we're going through now, and the, the effects of the seventh trumpet will, uh, the, the chronological um, 
recitation of those events we'll pick up in chapter 15. Um, so we have this, but we have an immediate reaction in heaven. Um, the events don't unfold uh, chronologically yet, but we have, um, we have the celebration of the fact that these events are about to take place in heaven. Um, and this is, there are many cases of this in the book of Revelation, but this has become is the aorist tense in Greek. Uh, which which sets it off as a proleptic, which means it's the, we don't have this tense in English. In Greek, you have it, and it's um, a a past tense uh, describing events in the future. So it's events in the future which are so certain that you talk about them as if they had already happened. That's a special Greek tense that we don't have in English. And you see it over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. And since we don't have that tense in English, it, we use the English past tense. And that will sometimes confuse people. Um, people will, will see that English past tense and say, aha, this must be events that happened in the past. But, but, that, but in order to think that, you have to ignore the fact that the actual Greek word in the actual scripture is the aorist tense, which means it's, it's a future event so certain that we're describing it as if it happened in the past. But it's not a past event. That Greek tense does not describe a past event. And so you have to be careful about that because people will take their English Bible and see a past tense and say, aha, something that happened in the past. No, that's not what the Greek tense says. Yes. Uh, okay, so there's this uh, celebration erupts in heaven because this, these events are about to happen. They're described as if they were past because they're so certain, even though they are future events. Um, and then we have the 24 elders who we've seen before who are representatives of the raptured church, uh, and they're part of this celebration. Um, they give the thanks, O Lord, uh, who were, who all, the God Almighty, who are and were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Um, and so we have this celebration in heaven that was kicked off by the sounding of the seventh trumpet, even though the events haven't quite happened yet. Um, the nations are enraged, we saw. Uh, those who are unrepentant are not happy about the, the uh, imminent coming of the kingdom of Christ. Um, so, and then we have this fact that the, uh, this is the time when we're going to have a judgment of the dead. Um, the time has come for the judgment of the dead, and it's uh, judgment both in the, uh, in the sense of reward for servants of Christ and judgment for those who destroy the earth, which is those who oppose God. And then we have, that was the, the very end of chapter 11, then we, we looked at the beginning of chapter 12. We have a, a kind of a prelude to this war that we're going to talk about today. Uh, we have the three main characters, the, the woman, who represents Israel, the dragon, who is Satan, and the male child, who is Christ. Um, there's a description of the woman, uh, which uses some of the similar language from Jacob's dream, uh, from the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Um, and then she's with child. Um, and we have a sign in heaven and, and a description of the dragon next. Uh, seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on the, on the seven heads. And we have a description of the fact that, that this dragon, who is Satan, uh, swept a third of the stars out of the heaven. That's a third of the angels uh, at his original fall. So we have uh, 
Not very much in the Bible about Satan's original fall. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. Um, but it, there's a description in there of a third of the angelic host uh, having fallen with Satan. Um, and here they're thrown to earth. Um, and then we have the dragon uh, and his plan. So this is really a recapitulation of things that have happened in the past here. Um, the birth of the child, of course, the child is Christ. And so Israel uh, symbolically giving birth to Christ. Obviously, that happened in the past. Jesus was born in the past and, and Satan tried to devour him in the past, uh, motivating um, uh, Herod to kill all the, the male children. Um, this is, as I said, this chapter 12 to 14 is kind of a recap of things that have happened to get us up to date, to get ready for uh, this seventh trumpet that can contain the seven bulls and the millennial kingdom that comes after. Uh, so this is a recapitulation of what happened in the past here. Um, and in spite of Satan's efforts, of course, the woman gives birth to the child. Christ is in fact born. Um, and he's not going to be able to hinder uh, what's coming next either. The Christ ruling the nations with a, a rod of iron in the millennial kingdom. So that's what we did last time. Any questions about uh, how we got to this point? Okay, very good. If you'll open your Bible or your device to Revelation chapter 12, we're going to be covering... Uh, the last verses from 7 to 17, seven, verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 7. So this is the word of the Lord. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle who were given to the woman, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. 
But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So what in the world is going on here with dragons and rivers and... Um, so let's take a look. Uh, first, I want to just give you a few paragraphs, as usual, from John MacArthur's uh, commentary on this section. So here's what uh, MacArthur has to say uh, to introduce this section of Scripture. He says, As part of their war against God, Satan and his demon hosts also battle the holy angels. That is not surprising, since Scripture describes the devil as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, and as as well as the ruler of this world in John 12 and 14 and 16. His theory of operations thus includes both heavens and the earth, and the war of the ages is being fought at every conceivable level, moral, ideological, philosophical, theological, and supernatural. Satan's battle plan for the earthly phase of the war of the ages is brutally simple, to eliminate all those who serve God. If he could, he would kill them all. If not that, he would destroy their faith, if that were possible. Were he able to rid the earth of all those who serve God, the devil would achieve his goal of unifying the entire world under his rule. It may be noted at this point that such a reality will occur when the believers on earth are raptured to heaven. Satan's evil plans will not succeed, however, for scripture reveals that he is already a defeated foe. Though Satan was defeated at the cross, his sentence has not yet been car fully carried out, and though he understands his destiny as revealed in Scripture, Satan nevertheless relentlessly continues to fight his losing battle against God. Thus, the war of the ages will continue until Satan is incarcerated temporarily in the abyss at the beginning of chapter 20, and then permanently in hell after that, uh, also in chapter 20, thrown into the lake of fire. The tribulation will be the worst of times for Israel for two reasons. During that seven-year period, God will pour out his final fury on the unrepentant and unbelieving world, including the unrepentant rebels of Israel. At the same time, Satan will make his last desperate attempt to prevent the promised reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on Israel's throne, and thus negate the salvation and kingdom promised to Israel. He will savagely assault the Jewish people, seeking to destroy both those Jews who have already come to faith in Christ and those who still might. The devil will also do everything in his power to hinder the ministries of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists and the two witnesses. Satan's onslaught against the Jews during the tribulation will begin with the rise to power of the Antichrist. During the first three and a half years of the tribulation, Satan will work to extend Antichrist's power once he becomes the ruler of the world, Satan will make use of him for his evil purposes. Thus, Antichrist will pose as the protector of the Jews during the first half of the tribulation. The covenant mentioned in Daniel 9.27 is a, a protection pact with the Antichrist that he will break in the middle of that seven-year period. At that point, Antichrist will become Israel's persecutor for the last half of the tribulation. He will reveal his true nature when he breaks the covenant and sets up the abomination of desolation mentioned in Daniel 11 and 12, and that Jesus uh, reiterated in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and Paul mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2. Three and a half years into the tribulation, 
at that time the Antichrist persecution of God's people, which has been going on throughout the first half of the tribulation, will focus on Israel and intensify. So that's how uh, John MacArthur sets up this uh, set of scripture that we're just about to look at. So, <clears throat> let's take a look, verse by verse, at what the scripture is telling us here. Um, uh, through the Holy Spirit, John writes, <clears throat> And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Uh, so, there's been war in heaven, of course, since the fall. Uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 describe Satan's fall. Uh, though at present, he still has access to God's presence in heaven. We see that um, in, um, we've seen that already in the book of Revelation. We see it in the book of Job. So Satan fell long before the book of Job, but in the book of Job, we see him presenting himself along with the other angels before God. And so um, he's obviously had access since his initial fall, and he'll have access all the way up until this fall that's described here. Um, he has access to God in heaven. Uh, so the, he, the Bible describes him as the God of this world, and the prince of the power of the air, um, and his demon host as the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what Ephesians 6 says. And so there's war uh, in heaven and on earth here described. Um, and so Satan, along with his demons, actively opposed uh, both the holy angels and God's people since his fall. He's been doing that. He's the adversary. He's the accuser of the brethren. Uh, this has been his um, self-appointed task since his fall. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, uh, demons sought to hinder the ministry of the holy angels to Israel. We saw this in uh, Daniel chapter 10. Um, Satan, in the present age, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5. He opposes the spread of the gospel, Matthew 13 and Acts 13. He oppresses individuals, Luke 13, Acts 10, and uses sin to disrupt and pollute the church, Acts chapter 5. Uh, believers are to be wary of his schemes, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and give him no opportunity, Ephesians chapter 4, and resist him, James chapter 4. So we're given instruction about how we're supposed to deal with the devil, what, the things that he does, and how we're supposed to respond uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, so this war raging between these supernatural beings in heaven uh, reaches its peak during the tribulation, uh, these events that are described here. Uh, and that future conflict, described here in Scripture as Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Um, the grammatical construction here of the Greek phrase indicates that Satan, the dragon, will start the battle. It doesn't come out as clearly in English, but in Greek it's clear that, the, um, uh, that Satan is initiating this, this battle. Um, it could be translated, Michael and his angels had to fight the dragon. Yes. Uh, 
So that's an excellent question, but, I, but the, my, unfortunately, my answer is I have no idea what, what, this, what the battle between angels look like. And so, I mean, we've had a glimpse that this has happened in the past, and I'll, I'll show you some scriptures about um, disputing over uh, Moses' body. Uh, an angel that was supposed to bring an answer to Daniel, one of Daniel's prayers is delayed for three months because he's got to battle these demons to get to Daniel to give him the answer to his prayer. Um, but what does that look like? What does it look like when angel battles angel? Really don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't think I really want to find out. Actually. <laughs> um, yeah. And fortunately, we don't have to. I mean, that's. Um, yeah, that's that's a battle that that God in it, that it has is assigned to His angels, not to us. And so, perhaps for that reason, God has chosen not to reveal what that looks like, what a battle between angels look like. Yes, sir. So there there are so Satan kind of falls in stages. He he has his initial fall. It's in Ezekiel uh, Isaiah fourteen, Ezekiel twenty eight. We have this fall that's described here, where he's thrown out of heaven, does no longer has access to heaven. Uh, then we have chained in the abyss. That's the next step after that for, for a thousand years. And then we have thrown into the lake of fire. So there are steps to Satan's fall, evidently. Uh, one, he's initially cast, um, he, he falls from his position in heaven. Um, sometime undefined. We don't know exactly when that first fall happened. But after that first fall, he obviously still has access to heaven. We see that very explicitly in Job. Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's right there presenting himself with the, with the other angels, the sons of God, in, in the book of Job. So he still has access until this event. This event, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he appears in the garden. Yeah, he, he does appear in the garden. So, yeah, so the, the timing is uh, not specifically mentioned, but it has to be before Genesis 3. So it has to be between creation and Genesis 3 that he, that first fall happens. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so we have uh, Michael and his angels had to fight the dragon. Um, so Michael and the dragon have known each other since they were created, and uh, the battle during the tribulation will not be the first time, as others have mentioned. Uh, we've seen Michael in Scripture before. Uh, Daniel chapter 10 provides an Old Testament example, a holy angel dispatched with an answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel 10, um, that Anne was just mentioning, was delayed for three weeks by a powerful demon who was in control of the Persian Empire. Um, and it was not until Michael... One of the chief princes came to help him that he was able to prevail. So here was a demon, he was delayed by, uh, the angel, he was delayed by a demon, and he had to get Michael's help before he could complete his mission. Um, and so this is a, a glimpse of the battle between uh, heavenly angels and fallen angels. Um, and we get this one little glimpse of it, um, but, and we don't know how common this is, but I think it would be strange if this was the only time this happened, that an angel was dispatched by God and was delayed or had to battle through a demon to, to accomplish his mission. Perhaps it is, uh, but we, we get this one mention of it, and specifically that uh, the archangel Michael had to come help. 
Um, Daniel chapter 12 also shows Michael's defense of God's people. Uh, now at that time, uh, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. So Michael is described as the protector, the guarder of your, of your people. Uh, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Um, and so this is Daniel talking about this uh, tribulation time. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of good details about things that are going to happen. And um, um, some of those things cause um, unbelieving scholars to postulate that that passage must have been written later. <laughs> so, so, right, because it can't, can't, because it's too, it's too specific, it's too precise for things that actually unrolled in history that it can't have been prophesied. We, we can't believe in prophecy, so therefore it must have been written after those events happened. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a coping mechanism for those who refuse to believe. Um, so, yeah. Um, so the New Testament also reveals Michael as the defender of God's people. Jude, verse 9. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare, uh, dare uh, pronounce against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So this is the, another strange incident about disputing over the body of Moses. Um, so Moses died, uh, recording the scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 34, uh, evidently Michael contested Satan for possession of Moses' body, which Satan apparently wanted for some purpose. Um, in the Lord's power, Michael won the battle, and subsequently, uh, Deuteronomy 34 tells us the Lord buried Moses in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. And so there was some sort of a battle between Satan and Michael over the body of Moses. That's odd. But this is another example of heavenly angel against demons or, and or Satan revealed in Scripture, that this has happened in the past. We, we get this massive battle here in Revelation described, but it's not the first time they've encountered one another. So uh, Jude 9 also describes Michael as an archangel, specifically as an archangel. And the only other reference to an archangel in Scripture is 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, where Paul talks about the rapture. Uh, in, in that passage, uh, Paul, uh, the, the 1 Thessalonians 4 passage, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. Uh, so it is possible that the archangel in that passage is Michael and that he is shouting as he confronts Satan's attempt to interfere with the rapture speculation. Uh, the repetition of the phrase waging war and waged war emphasizes the force and fury of the battle. This will be no minor skirmish but an all-out battle. So there have been these small skirmishes in the past. This is all-out war. Uh, he's fight, Satan's going to fight desperately to prevent Christ from establishing the Millennial Kingdom, just like he has fought desperately throughout history to prevent all of the parts of God's plan, uh, to try to kill Christ by killing all the, the babies in, in Israel. He, he's been trying to thwart the plan all along, and uh, he's, he's getting desperate down towards the end, trying to prevent the Millennial Kingdom. Um, just as he opposed Israel's restoration from captivity and was rebuked for it in Zechariah 3. Um, the supernatural war finally comes to its, its crescendo here in Revelation as the earthly kingdom of Christ draws near. 
Um, and so all of Satan's attempts throughout history, going all the way back to the garden, have failed, and he's going to lose this final battle as well. The devil and his angels are not strong enough, is how the scripture says it. They're not strong enough to defeat God and Michael and the holy angels. And Satan suffers such a complete defeat that there will no longer be a place found for him and his demon hosts in heaven. So he's thrown out of heaven for good at the end of this battle. Um, yes, good. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and the scripture continues in verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Notice, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. We get a, a three times repeating of this thing. So this is a, a certainty and a finality. There's a finality of him being thrown out of heaven. So he fell before, but he still had access to heaven. Now he's thrown down, he's thrown down, he's thrown down. That's it for him and access to heaven. But first he fell, then he got thrown. And then he got thrown. That's right. He fell and then he got thrown. And he got thrown and he got thrown and he got thrown. Um, he's thrown down from heaven to the earth. Uh, so this describes Satan's second and permanent expulsion from heaven, the first expulsion. We talked about Isaiah 14, Luke chapter 10. Uh, you mentioned Luke chapter 10. I think that's probably the, the first fall, but... <laughs> Um, the dragon is called great because of his formidable power uh, to inflict harm and bring disaster. Um, in the vision before, we saw him with seven heads and seven crowns and ten horns. Um, and that's the description of him as the, the ruler of this world. Uh, we get a fourfold description of the dragon, uh, which leaves no doubt about his identity. Uh, we, we get him called the serpent of old. And that identifies him as the serpent who was there in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we get him um, an emphasis on his subtlety and, and treachery. Uh, he's also called the devil. Uh, Greek word diabolos uh, means slanderer, defamer, false accuser. Uh, fitting title for Satan. Um, and then the text plainly identifies the dragon as Satan. And so there's no doubt this is one of the, you know, sometimes we, we have to try to, f it, it takes some, uh, some, some work to figure out what is this really talking There's no doubt about this one. Uh, this dragon is Satan. We don't have to wonder or speculate about that. Uh, this word, uh, uh, this Greek word, uh, Satanos, um, is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word. So the Hebrew word Satan, uh, it's a Hebrew word. And this Greek word that's in the text here is just a Greek transliteration of that Hebrew word. Um, and it means adversary. The Hebrew word means adversary. Um, fitting name for the enemy of God and his people. So, and it's of course very tragic. Uh, he's the star of the morning in Isaiah 14, a glorious created being, and he's now forever branded the adversary. Uh, he has, has assaulted God in his original rebellion when he demanded to be like the Most High. That's uh, the, the, the purpose for Satan's rebellion in Isaiah 14. And, and then, of course, he starts his career on earth by leading Eve into sin in the garden, uh, manipulating her to distrust the character and word of God. So how does he approach Eve? He says, did God really say? Um, 
And so he casts doubt on God's word. And then he goes on to cast doubt on his character. God knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. He's trying to hold you back, Eve. Um, he, he's, not, uh, he's, not, he's not who he represents himself to be. Uh, in character, both in word and character. That's what. That's how Satan approaches Eve, and that's that's been his nature from the beginning. Um, and then f- the final description of the dragon is the one who deceives the whole world. Uh, deceive translates this. Uh, it's a present participle, the verb planau, uh, to lead astray, to mislead, or to deceive. Um, and so that's what he does. Uh, the use of the present tense indicates that this is Satan's habitual, continual activity. He constantly accuses the believers, and he constantly deceives the whole world. This is who he is. Uh, so it's describing his character. Um, and so we get this very thorough description of who Satan is. And this is the dragon that's described here. Uh, Satan's uh, deception dominates the world during the tribulation as he mounts his last desperate assault against God. Um, and he uses agents uh, through the agents of the false prophet and associated with the Antichrist, who we'll see um, in uh, chapter 13. He's going to deceive those who dwell on the earth. So deceitful demons under Satan's control gather the armies for the Battle of Armageddon, and we'll see later in chapter 16 and chapter 19. And he's going to use what's figuratively described as Babylon, uh, describing the great end-time commercial empire, to deceive the unbelieving world. We'll see that played out in chapter 18. So he's thrown down to the earth, and he's going to deceive the earth for a time. Um, And so just as they were cast out of heaven with Satan in the original rebellion, so also his angels are thrown down with him. So he took a third of the angels with him in his original fall, and a third of the angels will be thrown down here in this uh, final expulsion from heaven. And this is bad news for the people that are still left on earth. Um, The fact that Satan and all of his demons are cast down to earth. Um, So this is in addition to the demons we've already seen come up out of the abyss in Revelation chapter 9. And the 200 million that were formerly bound at uh, the river Euphrates uh, later on in chapter 9. So we've got demons running everywhere. Uh, then the scripture continues, chapter uh, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So the the defeat of Satan and his demons and the cleansing of the presence from heaven triggers an outburst of praise. We've seen these outbursts of praise before um, in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 11. We'll see them again in chapter 15 and chapter 19. But this outburst of praise when God reveals something or does something... um, that is a, a major milestone in his plan, we get this um, uh, praise, joy, a joyful reaction in heaven. Um, the identity of those who he heard crying out loud is not stated. Um, this, um, 
it can't be angels, since the angels could not refer to humans as brethren. The Bible describes angels as fellow servants, but never as brethren uh, for believers. Um, so the worshipers then are most likely glorified saints in heaven. Um, and they begin their rejoicing by saying, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Um, and this, the cause, of course, is the expulsion of Satan from heaven. Um, and this, uh, the saints offer praise that the accuser has been thrown down, joy, joyful, uh, reveling in heaven. Uh, redeemed and glorified individuals. There was nothing Satan could legitimately accuse them of, but still they must have grieved that the suffering brethren on earth were subject to the devil's accusations. Um, and so that's what they're, they're really talking about here. Um, and once again, all of this is in the aorist tense. It's, in English, we see a past tense here. In Greek, it's aorist because these are future events that are so certain, they're talked about as if they've already happened. Uh, the heavenly worshipers also offer praise because of events on earth where their brethren overcame Satan. Um, and so Satan's tossed out of heaven. Um, he and his hosts, they vent their fury on people on earth. Um, and, they, and they also suffer defeat on earth. Just like they suffered defeat in heaven, they're going to suffer defeat on earth. Um, and once again, as I mentioned, this is future events talked about in the past tense because they're so certain. Aorist Greek tense. All the way through here. Overcame, for example, is another example of it. Um, believers on earth overcame Satan, though this has not yet happened. Talking about future events as if they're past. Uh, but don't let that confuse you. Just remember, the aorist tense in Greek doesn't exist in English, but it's talking about future events as if, so certain, as if they had already happened. Um, any questions? Let me stop here. Any questions about what we've gone through so far? So, uh, yeah, so cherubs were, um, in some sense, guardians. We, we don't... It, it's unfortunate in some ways that there's not a whole lot of details about angels. We, we know that there are a few different kinds. Cherub is one, and Satan's identified as a cherub there in Ezekiel. Um, it's cherubs that guard, for example, the, um, the way to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve are tossed out. It's cherub that has a sword and doesn't let anybody in. Um, but we don't get a, a detailed description of what else that means. What does it mean that somebody, that, that some being is a cherub, other than the example that we get of um, of the guardian at the the uh, uh, after the expulsion from the garden, and cherubs kind of guarding the mercy seat. Um, that's all we have. So. Um, I don't want to speculate about what else it means to be a cherub, uh, because I just don't know, and I don't think the scripture gives us the details to be able to make a definitive statement about what that means, that Satan was a cherub, what was the specific roles of cherubs, other than the, just the very few examples we get. It, it could. It could very well, and, and we get... In Isaiah 14, we get he was the star of the morning. Um, and so what does that mean, that he was the star of the morning? It seems to indicate 
perhaps, that he was a fairly high-ranking angel before he fell. Um, I, I think that's probably, that's a decent speculation, I think, uh, from the evidence we have in Scripture, that Satan probably, he was a cherub, described as a cherub in Ezekiel 28. He's, he gets a special description as star of the morning in Isaiah chapter 14. It seems to indicate that he had some rank. Uh, yes? Right. That's true. That's true. And so and we get very little else about the ranks of angels except for Michael. We get described as an archangel. Um, seraphim and cherubim are the two kinds of different kinds of angels that we get described in the Bible. Um, but we don't get a whole lot of details about what, what does that mean about an angel, that the fact that it's a, the angel is a seraphim uh, or a cherubim. What exactly does that mean, other than cherubim were the ones that guarded the entrance to the, the way to the Garden of Eden and guard the mercy seat, um, uh, just depictions of cherubs guard the mercy seat. Um, Yeah, um, there, there, there is a passage that tells us what kind of angels those were. Uh, I think those are seraphim. <clears throat> but there's not a lot. And so um, it's interesting, um, if, you, if you read uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion uh, by John Calvin, there's a section on angels in there. And in that section on angels, Calvin says, um, he, he uses kind of uh, harsh words. He says, uh, speculation about angels is useless. If the Lord wanted to reveal more about angels, he would have revealed in his scripture more about angels. So don't run off and speculate about angels. It's really kind of a harsh, harsh passage, a harsh way. And, and I think Calvin is saying, I don't know, and so don't ask me. Um, I, I, th I really think that's what, that's what Calvin is trying to say in his, in his institutes. Um, but, yeah, so there's, there's um, and there, there are some reasons, I think, why God doesn't real, reveal too much about angels. Um, there is the danger of worshiping them. Um, and we see a couple of examples in Scripture where people encounter angels and they try to bow down to them. And the angels stop them. No, 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 no. I, I'm, a, I'm a fellow servant, they say. Don't worship me. They, they point to Christ. They point to God as the only object of worship. So the heavenly angels are always really clear about that. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why um, I think that there's not a huge amount about angels and, and demons either uh, in the Bible as I think God knows us well enough as our creator to know that if we had too much information about angels, we would be more tempted to worship them. Um, but, yes. Right, and that's what the angels always do. They, they point to Christ, um, and so we should perhaps take their, their uh, example and advice and focus on Christ. 
Um, but it's always fun to speculate, isn't it? When we get a little bit of information about something, we want to know more. It's just the way we are. Yeah. Uh, and so we get, we get a description of how the uh, tribulation saints overcame Satan. It was by the word of their testimony. Uh, their testimony does not waver. Um, and the fact that they persevere. Uh, they do not love their life even when faced with death. They're able to face Satan's onslaught even if he kills them. Uh, their faithfulness extends all the way to death. Um, and so, because their faith was genuine, it's not only, uh, they're not only justified and sanctified, but also enabled them to persevere all the way to glorification. And so that's what we see here. We get a description of that here in the book of Revelation. So they overcame Satan, uh, and we get a description of how, how, why it is that they're able to overcome Satan. It's because of the blood of the Lamb, right? So who, whose power is it for them to overcome Satan? It's the blood of the Lamb. Right, so it's very clear. It's not. It's not in their own power that they overcame Satan. They overcame Satan because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony. So they clung to the gospel. Um, they they clung to uh, the testimony of Jesus Christ and His blood, and that's how they were able to overcome Satan. So I think it's really clear that, that it's not that these are some mighty. Um, mighty saints, um, you know, that are uh, towering spiritual giants that are able to overcome Satan. No. They're able to come, overcome Satan because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. Okay, for this reason, o rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Uh, so, continuing along, uh, now Satan has been cast down with his demons. Uh, woe to the earth, because here he comes. Um, uh, so, there's a kind of a reveling in heaven or rejoicing in heaven, uh, but there's a woe to those that are still on earth during the tribulation um, with this warning. Um, uh, Thomas' wrath refers to a violent outburst of rage. Uh, depicts turbulent emotional fury rather than rational anger. Uh, so there is a kind of anger or wrath that God has that is rational and just. This is not that. This is a different uh, kind of wrath. Uh, it's a different Greek word from the Greek word used for the wrath of God. It's emotional, turbulent emotional fury, um, irrational anger. Uh, Satan's rage is more violent because he knows that he only has a short time. The remainder of the tribulation. Uh, we've already seen that described a number of times. We'll see it again. Um, described as three and a half years. Described as uh, 42 months. Described as 1260 days. Uh, we'll see it described again here in, in just a minute. Uh, but he has only a short time. And we're going to see that that time he has is three and a half years. Um, and then uh, verse 13, And when the angel saw that the, he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time, times, and half a time. So time is one year. Times is two more years. Half a time is half a year. So it's one plus two plus a half. Three and a half years. So this is three and a half years. Uh, Satan has been thrown down, and now he's got three and a half years to persecute the woman uh, who gave birth to the male child. 
Uh, so the woman is Israel, the male child is Christ, and the dragon is Satan. He's going to persecute her for three and a half years. Um, and so now the reason for Israel's flight that was previously mentioned, so we, we saw Israel's flight in chapter 12, verse 6. Now we see the reason for the flight. Um, so dra the dragon, Satan, is thrown down to earth. Uh, he's frustrated and enraged with his ejection, uh, desperate uh, knowing that he has only a short time. Uh, left to oppose God's plans uh, before he's incarcerated in the abyss for a thousand years. He furiously persecutes the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child, Christ. Um, the Greek verb there, uh, dioko, dioko, uh, persecuted, means to, it literally means to pursue, to chase, or to hunt. Um, and the New Testament, uh, uh, it's used in the New Testament of pursuit with hostile intent. Uh, we see it in Matthew 23 and Acts 26. Um, and so the intent, the, it's a good translation. To persecute is a good translation. Uh, literally means to pursue, to chase, or to hunt. Um, and it describes Satan's hostile pursuit and persecution of the Jews as they flee into the wilderness. So we've seen in uh, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 6. Uh, God intervenes directly on behalf of the Jewish people. Uh, John sees in his vision... Uh, the two wings of the great eagle given to the woman so she could fly into the wilderness. Uh, so what is this thing with two wings? Uh, this is figurative language. Um, the woman is a figurative woman representing Israel. The wings are figurative wings. Um, the imagery is taken from Exodus chapter 19. Um, and so when God was describing back to the Israelites his rescue of them from the Egyptians... Here's what God said. He said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Were there any eagles with wings involved in the Exodus? No. This is figurative language. God described his rescue of his people from Egypt as giving them wings of eagles and taking them out of Egypt. This is the same imagery here. Wings of eagles, rescuing his people, just like he rescued them from Egypt. Um, he's using the same imagery that he actually had already used in Exodus chapter 19 for him rescuing his people. Uh, wings in scripture symbolize strength and speed in various places. Isaiah 40, 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 18, and 104. Most commonly, wings speak of protection. Um, in Deuteronomy 32, for example. So God is protecting and saving his people. Uh, that's what these wings uh, of the great eagle represent here in this uh, vision. So the location of the place to which the uh, Jews flee is not revealed. Um, uh, the term wilderness is imprecise. So <laughs> wilderness could mean a lot of different places. Uh, it does not reveal an exact place. Um, the, uh, the term is general. It's used to describe desolate areas uh, east of Jerusalem and a couple of different places in the scripture. Um, Jesus warned in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 uh, that they, they would flee to the mountains. Uh, and this suggests that the refuge will not be in the coastal plain, which would not be fleeing to the mountains. Uh, the coastal plain to the west of Jerusalem would not be mountains. Uh, the relatively flat Negev, the desert region to the south, that wouldn't be mountains either. 
Um, so the mountainous region is to the east of Jerusalem. East and east-southeast of Jerusalem is most likely what's in view here. Uh, Daniel 11 adds a little bit of extra um, description. Uh, the Antichrist will uh, also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of the hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Those are nations that are to the east of Jerusalem and the east-southeast of Jerusalem. Um, and so, putting those scriptures together, once again, this is speculation. The refuge may be to the east and the east-southeast of Jerusalem. But the location is not given precisely here. Uh, so in this place of safety and refuge, uh, Israel will be supernaturally nourished by God. Now we've seen God supernaturally nourish his people in the past. We had the, the manna uh, that went on for years and years in the, uh, in the wandering in the wilderness. So God has done this before. Um, he, he's done it with individual prophets before, supernaturally brought them food. And he's done it with a whole mass of, of a nation before. And so evidently he's going to do it again um, for three and a half years. Uh, so we get time, times, and, and half a time. Uh, that phrase is drawn from Daniel 7 and Daniel 12. refers to the second half of the tribulation, um, which Jesus referred to as the great tribulation in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Uh, it's the same period as defined previously in uh, chapter 12, verse 6, as 1,260 days. That's the same. And in um, chapter 13, it will be described as the 42 months. That's the same. Um, initiated by the setting up of the abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter 11 and 12, which Jesus then referred to in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and which Paul referred to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as well. And so this marks the visibly overt evil career of Antichrist. He's been uh, masquerading as a friend of Israel for the first half of the tribulation, making some kind of a treaty, letting them set up uh, uh, temple worship and sacrifice, and, but Satan's thrown down to the earth, and Satan's agent then, the Antichrist, the, the beast, the dragon and the beast, uh, the beast unleashes on Israel at that point um, and viciously persecutes for the second half of the tribulation. But God will protect Israel from the presence of the serpent. Uh, Satan may know where the Jews are hiding, but he will be unable to get at them because of divine protection. So they're protected from the presence of the serpent. So it's clear it's the it's Satan who's, who's seeking to destroy them, but God won't allow that to happen. Uh, and, but the serpent goes all out. Uh, I mean, Satan is, he's a defeated foe, but he's not going to give up. He's going he's gonna to fight and battle to the very end. And so we get this description of a, an additional attack. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So, uh, he's thwarted in his initial attempt to massacre the Jewish people. They, they run away and hide. God hides them and protects them. So he's unable to directly assault them in their hiding place, so he resorts to some sort of a long-range tactic to try to get at them. Um, so, this is once again, I think, uh, pretty clearly 
Uh, symbolic language, the serpent is not an actual snake, but a symbolic representation of Satan. The water uh, that he spews out like a river is not a, really a river. It's symbolic as well, some other kind of attack. Um, it's once again derived from the Old Testament. Uh, John does this over and over again in Revelation. He doesn't directly quote, but he, he takes illustrations and imagery from Old Testament scripture. Uh, floods symbolize trouble in general in 2 Samuel 22, Job 27, Psalm 18, 32, 69, uh, on and on. And an invading and destroying army in Jeremiah 46 and 47 and Daniel 11. So flood is used as a symbol of uh, catastrophes coming um, in the Old Testament. And so somehow Satan's attacking forces will sweep towards the Jews' hiding place like a great flood. Um, and he's trying, he's seeking to cause Israel to be slept, swept away with this flood, uh, to be consumed and destroyed. Uh, that's the imagery here. Um, but just as God has sheltered Israel from Satan's initial onslaught, he will also defeat this second assault as well. Uh, in some kind of dramatic fashion, the earth helped the woman open its mouth and drank up the river. Uh, somehow the earth prevented um, this attack that Satan is making on the uh, nation of Israel that's hiding and being protected. Um, so the imagery is reminiscent of Moses' description of God's destruction of Pharaoh's army. Um, and so we get the description that Moses makes of the Pharaoh's army being drowned. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. That's how Moses described Pharaoh's army being destroyed by God in the Red Sea. Uh, you stretched out their, your hand and the earth swallowed them. And so the same kind of imagery. The earth swallowed Satan's attack. Uh, so it's obviously God intervening uh, and somehow stopping um, Satan's attack. Uh, there's another Old Testament parallel with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They're a rebellion against Moses, and, and that's in number 16, and the, and the earth literally opened up and swallowed them. Um, and so we've seen God do this in the past. Uh, he, he, he demonstrates his sovereignty over his creation in a spectacular way uh, by using it to destroy enemies of his. Um, and so that's what he's describing here. That's what's being described here. Uh, God's going to miraculously defeat Satan's attack on Israel somehow, um, like uh, similar to what he did with Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea and these rebellions against Moses. Um, the earth opened, literally opened and swallowed uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Okay. Um, and, of course, we've seen these massive earthquakes being described in, uh, during the tribulation period. And it's possible that God uses another one of these things to literally open up the earth and, and swallow up Satan's attack. Could be. Whatever the symbol, the, the symbol is, whatever the uh, this symbolic language is picturing, it marks the destruction of an attack and the end of Satan's second assault uh, against Israel. And so, then we have, uh, at the end of this passage, so the dragon was enraged with the woman, so he's been trying to claw and reach at her, and God won't let him, and uh, he went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Uh, so now Satan is thoroughly frustrated, and he's enraged, according to Scripture, 
by his inability to destroy the woman, Israel. Uh, and so the dragon, Satan, will turn his fury toward new targets. Uh, some have identified the rest of her children, uh, with whom Satan will make war, as the 144,000. Others see them as believing Gentile tribulation saints, who are, uh, according to Galatians 3, sons of Abraham by faith. Um, but it seems best to take this as an all-inclusive phrase. So um, the rest of her children uh, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, that's all the believers, uh, I, I think, is what's being referred to here. Uh, further, so not just the nation of Israel, in other words, has been attacking, attacking, attacking. Now he's, he's going to try to go after every, anybody who um, keeps the commandments of God and holds to the testimony of Jesus, all the believers uh, that are left then. Um, so they're described as those who keep the commandments. Uh, commandments here, uh, the Greek word entelos, um, is a word used frequently in John's writing in particular to refer to New Testament commands. Uh, so he uses that in the Gospel of John, and he'll use it here in Revelation in chapter 14. He uses it in the Gospel of John in chapter 14, chapter 15. He uses it in the Epistle of 1 John in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 5. So he, John uses this Greek word many times, and he uses it usually to describe commandments of the New Testament, things that Jesus said. Um, the testimony of Jesus is not testimony about him, but the testimony he gave. In other words, that's what John's really getting at here. These are the things that Jesus told us. Um, the testimony of Jesus. Truths that he taught and are revealed in the New Testament. That's how John uses that word in his gospel and his epistle. Uh, okay, so like the first two attacks this, the, that were directed specifically at Israel, his third attack will also fail. Uh, his attacks fail every time. Um, uh, God won't let him succeed. And so uh, in this, uh, this little, uh, this little uh, 12 to 15, uh, 12 to 14, uh, chapter 12 to 14, where we've got the, the seventh trumpet is sounded, but we don't, we don't get the, uh, the results, the playing out of, of what happens with the seventh trumpet and the bulls quite yet. Um, we had this loud voice proclaim the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That's the Aorist tense, tense again has become something that's in the future that's so certain uh, that we describe it as if it's in the past. Aorist tense. Um, it doesn't matter what Satan does, in other words. Satan continues to rage against God's plan and he cannot affect God's plan. He can't do it. All his efforts to prevent Christ's kingdom from being established are doomed. His efforts to present, prevent the coming of the Messiah, which he, he, he attacked the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, trying to prevent the coming of the Messiah. Then when the Messiah came, he, tried, he killed all the children under two in Israel to prevent the Messiah from uh, reaching manhood and, and fulfilling his purpose and his earthly ministry. And now he's still trying to, uh, he's an accuser of the brethren continually, he's attacking um, God's plans in this, um, uh, the future events in the book of Revelation. Um, it's, it's his consistent attack against uh, God's plans continue to fail. Um, and they will continue to fail. Um, he's trying to prevent, in this case, Christ's establishing of his millennial kingdom. Uh, Christ being seated on David's throne in Jerusalem. Um, 
So, but the Lord Jesus Christ will triumph. He will reign on earth, and the surviving tribulation saints, both Jews and Gentiles, will enter his earthly kingdom, and there's nothing that Satan can do about it. <clears throat> so, for the people of Israel who have suffered through um, tremendous difficulties um, throughout history, um, the darkest hour still lies ahead. The worst of it is still coming in this tribulation. But it will be followed by a glorious dawn. Uh, the elect remnant of Israel, having survived the persecution, the worst persecution in their whole long history, will be saved and will enjoy the millennial kingdom. Uh, and as Romans 11.26 says, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. And so that's what, what Paul says in Romans 11.26, says all Israel will be saved just as it is written. Uh, he's referring back to the Old Testament, uh, saying that this is the consistent teaching, uh, that God will save his people. And Satan is so desperate to prevent that from happening. Um, and we see all the things that he tries to do here um, in Revelation that he will try to do uh, in the end times. And all of it will be to no avail. Let's, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, what we read in your scripture, how you revealed yourself and your plans. Uh, we thank you for all of that. We thank you for who you are. And we, uh, we pray, Lord, as we, as we go out of this room to, uh, to corporate worship, um, as we worship you in um, songs and hymns and spiritual songs and, um, and worship you uh, through the preaching of your word that... Uh, uh, the meditations of our heart, uh, the words of our lips, everything that we do would bring glory to your name and be acceptable in your sight. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.